Did you know VIP season ticket subscribers have access to this workshop and hundreds more in streaming video, MP3 download, audio CD, executive white paper summary, and podcast formats? Visit vip.dealersedge.com for more information. Well, we certainly picked a good time to cover today's topic. Just before Christmas, President Trump signed into law the most consequential tax legislation in three decades. The law has a special focus on the taxation of businesses, including car dealers. Of the key provisions of the Tax Reform Act of 2017 and 18, which ones will be most important to you? Today, Joe Magyar and Natalie Fernier will cover the uncertainty in the interpretations of the law because, as always, the devil is in the details. What's the potential impact on auto dealers? Well, here's some tax planning ideas that auto dealers should consider now to take full advantage of the new law. And dealership owners may have to adjust their investments and business structures to take full advantage. So let's get the facts before you act. Joe and Natalie are both with Crow Horwath LLP, an international auditing and consulting firm with a group dedicated to serving auto, the auto retailing industry. I'm Mike Bowers with Dealer's Edge. Required to adopt these changes in those 21 states. Um, and you can expect, as we saw in the past with things like bonus depreciation, that many states will decouple, maybe not from the law in whole, but they may uh, decouple in certain areas. So. They would adopt most of the provisions, but they would choose to not uh, adopt something like full expensing of depreciable assets. Mike, before we move on, are there any questions we'd like to address at this time? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, I think this one looks like it's probably for Natalie. Uh, Natalie, on the limitation on state and local taxes, uh, the question is, 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 does the limitation apply to only one type of tax or all of them? It applies to all types of tax. So in the aggregate, so you're, as a total, you get $10,000 deduction. And it could, you know, a portion of it could be your income tax, a portion could be your, your property tax. Okay. All right, another one for you, Natalie. Uh, if cash charitable deductions... Uh, go up to, uh, can be deducted up to 60% of adjusted gross income, will the non-cash charitables change from 30% or not? No, it's, it's, it's written in there. It's just the cash contributions to, and it's to what they historically have been called 50% organizations. Um, I guess they might change it to say 60%, but it's to those public charities, and it's only cash contributions. It is not um, contributions of appreciated stock that are going to go up. Those remain at the 30% limitation. All right. Uh, this, is, uh, this would be for Joe. Uh, do you feel the change in the tax rate will prompt some dealers to move off of LIFO? And if so, does that pickup income get the lower rate that has now been implemented? In general, I would not expect dealers to uh, terminate their LIFO elections. Uh, you still have what I would view as a 
interest-free loan for that LIPO reserve or the tax on that LIPO reserve that you have from the government. And I would suggest that most dealers would want to retain that interest-free loan as long as possible, even if it's not worth as many tax dollars. Uh, there could be some exceptions to that, but for the most part, I think people would uh, retain their LIPO elections. As far as, uh, you know, you would get you know, a lower benefit going forward because your rates are going to be lower. And if you chose to terminate your LIFO election, that's generally spread into income over four years. And it would be at the rate, in effect, at the time that uh, each fourth was picked up. So if you wanted to terminate your LIFO today, uh, you could do it for 2018 and pick it up at those lower rates than uh, would have been as, uh, applicable in the past. Okay. Uh, I should also say the first question we got uh, was sort of what, what should we do? Should we switch from an S corporation to a C corporation? And the answer that I heard was uh, it depends. Uh, it depends on that, you know, on how when you go through that list of, uh, of conditions, uh, you may or may not want to make that change. Is that correct? That's correct. It, it depends, and it's it's going to be a pretty complex analysis for a lot of a lot of dealers to go through. Okay. Um, did you say that a real estate company will not qualify as a pass-through? Uh, well, we're going to talk about the pass-through energy provisions uh, here coming up, but, yes, it is possible that your real estate entity – may not qualify for the 20% deduction. Okay. Uh, here's a question that had to do with the, uh, you mentioned something called a related rental entity. So the question is, could a dealership conceivably have a separate company that holds all of its assets in that separate company uh, and then take the bonus depreciation and lease the assets back to the dealership? Uh that's an interesting planning idea. I think conceivably you could. Um, you know, I would more likely view that as someone who has an existing rental entity that's got the land and building in it might use that entity instead of setting up a, a separate entity. Um, one of the, the issues you might, you might run into a number of issues. Certainly, if you're doing something Purely for tax avoidance, you need to be careful about that because you can have that thrown back in. But um, that definitely is going to be part of this depreciation consideration is, okay, going forward, where should we put our assets? Uh, and particularly as you make new asset acquisitions, uh, not necessarily going to make much difference for things that uh, are already on your, on, on your balance sheet. Okay. Uh, two questions relating to uh, the floor plan interest issue. Um, so how will floor plan credits be treated? Uh, should we take them as a reduction of floor plan interest? No. Uh, floor plan credits, well, in, you know, dealer accounting, typically they're treated as an offset. From a federal income tax standpoint, uh, floor plan interest credits are not a reduction to interest. 
they're actually what's referred to as a treat, trade discount or a reduction in the cost of your inventory to which those credits relate. So really the proper tax treatment of those credits is to reduce the cost of your inventory, which gives you a tax deferral, not to treat it as a uh, reduction in your interest expense. Okay. All right. And, and the second question was basically the same. Um, all right. In a real estate company servicing debt, the interest is a substantial expense. So we have to elect out of bonus depreciation to maintain the 100% interest deduction. Is that correct? Uh, that For many real estate entities, that, that would be the case. Um, however, the, the election for real estate entity is different than the limitation on a floor plan financing dealership entity. And when you make that election, you're not necessarily getting kicked out of bonus completely. Uh, your, your shorter life tangible assets potentially can still get bonus. And you just have some adjusted lives on some of your life, longer life assets. So it's, it's actually might not be as costly a thing to do in a real estate entity to be able to deduct 100% of your interest expense as opposed to what it might have been in a dealership. Okay. okay. Uh, again, could you please repeat the comment you made about bonus depreciation not being available for car dealers with floor plan finance? Okay, so <clears throat> when the uh, legislative process was ongoing, there was a significant threat for dealers to lose their floor plan interest deduction. And so the bargain that the NADA negotiated for its members was that you could deduct 100% of your floor plan interest in all cases. The trade-off for that was that a dealership that has floor plan interest financing is not allowed to utilize bonus depreciation starting in 2018. So instead of taking 50 or 100% bonus depreciation, those assets will be depreciated over their normal tax lives. So five years, seven years, 15 years, depreciation for 100% of those asset costs instead of being able to expense a chunk of it up front and depreciate whatever's left. Does that okay. clarify it better, Mike? Uh, it does for me. Um, you made reference to a $2.5 million phase-out. Um, what did that apply to? That applies to your 179 expense. So your annual ability to write off up to what was 500000 now a million dollars of fixed assets, that phases out when you have more than $2.5 million of asset additions. Okay. Um, regarding the uh, depreciation versus interest deduction question for a real estate company, is that a year-to-year -year election, or is that, or is that a permanent election? It's, it, there's not. There may be some future clarity coming on that. As I read the law, 
it is a irrevocable election that once made uh, would continue on indefinitely. So you could not make it for two or three years, but once you make it, then you're going to be stuck with it on an ongoing basis after that. Okay. Uh, okay, one of the audience members would like us to mention that if someone forms a leasing company, so if they can take the 100% bonus depreciation, you need to be careful to look at your state tax rules as well, uh, because if your state charges sales tax on lease payments, then this uh, maybe is, would not be so beneficial. Yes. Yeah, and that, um, it's Florida, where I sit, it's one of the states that you, you might have to pay sales tax on that, particularly if you added it to your rental entity, if you're paying sales tax on your commercial rent and you add more assets and increase your your uh, rental payments, you'd increase your sales tax exposure. Okay. Uh, can we take 100% bonus depreciation on used assets between September 28th and December 31st, 2017, or does the rule for this year apply only to new assets? Uh, yes, you can take 100% uh, bonus on used assets. Anything after that September 27th date, uh, the, the used assets will be qualified as well. Okay. Uh, and it uh, looks like the second part of the same question. Uh, if we set up a related party company, would the, will the IRS still allow the bonus depreciation? Well, I, I think you'd have to work, sort through that with your tax advisor because if if you're doing it just to, uh, you know, move things around and play games, that that can be problematic. Okay. Um. Could you please revisit the M and E deduction eliminations or limitation changes? Uh, perhaps just review that. Sure. So let me um, flip back to that slide here real quick. Um, so the <clears throat> uh, under the new law, there's where you may have had deductions before. There's now no deduction for certain categories of expenses. So entertainment and recreational expenses, including amounts paid for an entertainment facility, social club dues. Um, there's other things like qualified parking and transportation fringes, athletic facilities, those things are now non-deductible. With regard to the, the meals limitation, and where we would most frequently see this is where the dealership buys dinners or lunches for people who are working and has that available on site. Um, that, that does get a little a little tricky. So um, in the past, those would have been 100% deductible. Under the new law, those meals are going to only be 50% deductible, but they're only 50% deductible until 2026. At that time, those meals will also become non-deductible. Okay. All right. uh, if dealerships cannot use 100% bonus depreciation because of floor plan interest deduction, then uh, isn't the loss 
of the 1031 exchange for personal property, for example, airplanes, uh, a, a much bigger deal? If the airplane is inside your dealership entity, yes, it is a bigger deal. Um, if the airplane is in a entity separate from your dealership entity, um, then it's not going to be subject to the bonus depreciation limitation, and you would get a hundred percent write-off on that plane, which effectively puts you in the same, actually, a better place than you would have been in with the like kind exchange. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's an issue if the plane's inside the dealership, which for a variety of reasons probably isn't where you want the plane, but um, sometimes that is the case, or sometimes that's the tax effect. All right. Um, even though state and local taxes, the deduction is limited to $10,000, uh, we can still include these deductions on our state tax return. Uh, that is, if we had property tax greater than $10,000, these would still be deducted, let's say, from California state taxes. Uh, is that correct? Natalie, I think that one's for you, but you might yeah. be muted. I saw you on mute, Natalie, but we still can't hear your voice. Sorry, I will be honest. On on for California, I am not sure if that would if you would still be able to deduct it. Okay. Um, how will uh, OEM uh, for plan assistance impact our decision to elect bonus depreciation? Uh, that is, since we'll have no net four plan to deduct. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, the dealership entity pro prohibition from bonus depreciation is not elective. It's it's mandatory. It's, okay. it's right. in exchange for the ability to deduct your floor plan interest. Um, uh, however, you know it is it, the offset again is that you might offset on your books for interest assistance. Uh, is not a offset for tax purposes. It's really a, a reduction of your inventory expense. So your really your gross floor plan interest expense is what your floor plan interest expense would be for tax purposes and, you know, what would, in this case, still be 100% deductible. Um, do, do you have a sense from the dealers you've heard from or spoken with uh, what percentage of them are likely to move to C corporations? Uh, I would expect from who I've spoken with so far, and as we just try and, and you know, this has only been out for a couple of weeks, so we're, we're still trying to sort through really how this might play out and, you know, dozens of different sets of circumstances, but I would say it's going to be fairly limited, on the, at least on the dealership entities. I think um, some of the creativity might come in and looking at, well, maybe my management company or maybe I should set up a management company that's a C-Corp instead of, you know, switching my dealership to that corp um, 
it's almost a flip on kind of old time planning when you would have maybe had C-Corp dealerships and had an S-Corp management company and pulled income out to a lower rate that way. You could potentially do something like that. I, I think we're still really working through what all those, you know, creative solutions might be. Uh, however, when you really look at if you want to get the cash out of the business, or at the end of the day, if you sell the business and liquidate, the, to get your cash, the taxes are still higher in virtually every circumstance as a C-corporation. The advantage to being a C-corp in that lower rate is going to come primarily in a situation where you're plowing all the cash back into the business after taxes are paid. And uh, again, once again, uh, did I did we hear that if we wanted to recapture LIFO now, or if we sold the business now, the LIFO would be taxed at the new lower rates? Yeah. So if you if you locked it off of LIFO in eighteen, uh, get spread over four years, and you pay tax at the rates that are there today. Uh, if you sold the business and you picked up all the LIFO in that year of sale. Again, in 2018, it's going to be these lower rates. Okay. With the 179 expense deduction still, yeah. Uh, I think we should probably hold the rest of the question to the end. Okay. I know, I know we, have, we still have to get to the pass-throughs. All right, why don't we uh, hold the other questions to the end, and we'll get then uh, let's go to the pass-through entity tax. And number five, maximize your qualification for the 20% pass-through deduction. Uh, we could have a top ten list, but I limited it to five because I felt we had enough complexity already. So, and with that, we can take some additional questions. All right, John, how are we doing for time? Well, I mean, really, we can take all the time we need. The, the questions are coming in still, so okay. I would say answer all the questions. Questions. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, our dealership does not use a traditional floor plan uh, line of credit to finance inventory. We use um, more of a, a general corporate credit facility. Uh, is the interest on that type of facility still deductible? Uh, likely it is not. Uh, it would be necessary to look at the specific definition with your tax advisor of what is floor plan interest, and I don't have the law in front of me, but I believe it refers to uh, a line of credit on inventory, uh, so you would need to have that probably direct connection. I would suspect that that's not going to qualify, and so there may be a need there if you're going to bump up against the limits. Uh, to consider restructuring that in a way that would be a more traditional floor plan financing arrangement. Okay. All right. Uh, the de minimis capitalization rules of the tangible regulations, would, would they still apply and not be affected by the new tax law? Yes. The, um, the existing regulations uh, for tangible property are still fully in effect as they were, and uh, that is, that's a further <laughs> extreme complexity to all this depreciation stuff is there are 
there are a number of tools within those regulations that you would want to be looking at and using as well and maybe utilizing some of those rules will offset, you know, a loss of bonus depreciation or something like that. Okay. Uh, will a change in our accounting method be required if we switch our real estate to ADS life uh, if we're making our interest election for assets placed in service before January 1st, 2018, or are we required to use ADS life for post-2017 assets? Well, if you um, make that election for a real estate entity, um, it would be, that election would be considered an, an accounting method and you would not need to make a separate accounting method change in addition to making that election. The, the change in method would be uh, kind of part and parcel of making that election. Okay. Uh, do we need to set up a separate account for all of our holiday parties in order to receive the 100% deduction? I don't think you need to set up a separate account to qualify for the 100% deduction. However, that's probably a very advisable and a great way to keep track of it. Okay. Uh, could dealerships take the bonus depreciation and then subject themselves to the 30% interest expense limitation? No, it's not, it's not elective. It's uh, for a dealer uh, that, is, that is mandatory that you okay. do not uh, get to use bonus. Uh, all right. Uh, how would you define a holiday party? It's, um, uh, I don't know, maybe Natalie can help me with this one. Um, it's, I think the definition is something along the lines of a social gathering for the benefit of the employees of an organization. So it yeah. can be a holiday party, it could be a summer group outing, anything like that. Okay, uh, employee recognition dinners, that sort yeah. of thing? Yeah. yeah. Is there any limitation on the deductibility of real estate taxes being expensed on an individual Schedule E real estate properties? Uh, Nancy, no, you want to take that it was one? only on the itemized deduction. It, the limitations on the on Schedule A itemized deductions. If you had a Schedule C as well and you had some taxes, you'd be able to deduct those taxes on your Schedule C as well. Right, just like it's not limited for the dealership either. Okay. Uh, what would you suggest if a dealer does not use trade discounts uh, for floor plan credits? Uh, assume they do not want to make a 3115 accounting change. Would floor plan expense be the gross expense for these new rules? Uh, regardless of whether you use a proper tax accounting method to treat those as trade discounts uh, for the purpose of the interest calculations, uh, it would still be the gross amount would be your floor plan interest. Of course, there's no detriment to that because 100% of a dealer's floor plan interest will continue to be deductible in all cases. Uh, again, back to the state and local tax limitation. Uh, prior to 2018, a person could deduct 
two out of three of the SALT taxes. That is, you could take property taxes and income tax or property tax and sales tax. In 2018 and going forward, uh, we'll be limited to only one type of tax subject to the $10,000 limitation. That is only property tax or only income tax or only sales taxes? No, it still retains the, the two. Okay. All right. Uh, if we have an employee leasing company for all employees for our 20 dealerships, uh, we have no W-2 wages in the dealership business. How would that work for a deduction? Is that, that, that question is probably today beyond the scope of what we can answer. Okay. Um, right. There have been a number of uh, people who have written or talked about that. It's, it, it, it's perhaps problematic, but there may be uh, some solutions to that problem. Okay. Uh, are Schedule E rentals going to get the deductions that are not in the pass-through entity? Um, Schedule E rentals should qualify for the deduction if the other criteria are met. Okay. Uh, Okay. What if we ha what if one dealership pays all the way all the salary to the dealer, pays the dealer's salary, and then allocates that expense across the other dealerships in the group? Would the wages paid uh, under the parent's uh, employee identification number only apply to that one entity? That could depend on whether you're using a common paymaster or exactly how you're allocating that expense. Um, however, I guess what I want to point out here is that it's the, <clears throat> the limitation of the 50% of W-2 wages includes all wages paid by that pass-through entity. So it's the dealer and every other employee that an entity is paying wages to. So if you're, you're paying one entity is paying the dealer and you're spreading it, I imagine just all your other wages are going to be over 50% most dealerships, regardless of whether the dealer's wages get counted in there or not. Okay. Uh, for real estate properties uh, on Schedule E, that are 100% owned by, an by one individual. Are there any thoughts to moving these properties into LLCs to take advantage of the 20% pass-through tax break? Well, that, that wouldn't be necessary because the 20% pass-through break applies to S-Corps partnerships. I wasn't clear about this originally, but also includes anything that's reported on a Schedule C or a Schedule E, so a, a sole proprietorship, uh, a rental uh, activity that's on your Schedule E, those will qualify, again, assuming you can meet the, you know, 50% or 25 and 2.5% theft and such. Okay. Uh, would the 20% deduction be allowed on a long-term 
1231 gain from the sale of business assets? And, uh, and what about goodwill? Um, it, if you have a 1231 asset, your gain is going to be capital gain and your loss is going to be ordinary. So your gain would not be would not qualify because it would be a, a capital gain item that's subject to a lower tax rate. So you you don't get the additional benefit of the twenty percent. Um, same thing with goodwill. What you're going to have with goodwill is you probably if you bought it and amortized it, you're going to have ordinary recapture for your amortization. That would be at ordinary rates. It would qualify, but the capital gain portion beyond that would not qualify for the 20% deduction. Uh, how do rules governing the governing passive income uh, or passive loss rules interface with the 20% deduction? With additional complexity, and thank God for computer software, because, yes, you have basis or risk limitations and you have passive limitations, uh, those things will occur in order where the pass-through deduction will be after those things are considered because the pass-through deduction is after your adjusted taxable income, whereas those limitations apply before that. So typically you're going to have your at-risk or your basis limitation, uh, passive limitation, then the 20% is going to come after that. Okay. Uh, if an entity is on a fiscal year basis as opposed to a calendar year basis, how would the W-2 test apply? I haven't thought about that. I would suspect that in a pass-through, it's going to be based on the um, the year, the, the fiscal year wages for that entity applied to the year that the K-1 is reported on the individual's return. So if you had a 331 year end, you would have, for example, 331.17 year end K-1 would be reported on, would actually be a 2016 K-1 on the form, but it would be for the 331.17 year end would be reported on your 17 return or roll that 4 to 18 for this purpose. But um, I think you would need to probably, I expect, you look at the wages for that 12 months that's on that pass-through return. So 4-1 through 331 of the year that goes with that. Okay. Do single-member LLCs qualify as pass-throughs? Uh, well, they would be a disregarded entity within wherever they're reported. So if it was a single-member LLC and it was a real estate entity reported on your Schedule E, then it would be, as we talked about, with it applying at that Schedule E activity level. Um, if it's a single-member LLC that's owned by an S-corporation, it's just part of that S-corp, and that S-corp is your pass-through. You don't look at that disregarded entity separate for this purpose. Okay. Is there a 20% deduction for real estate entities that are on a Schedule E versus being in a pass-through entity? Yes. 
regarding the $500,000 business losses on that final slide, is that $500,000 uh, an aggregate loss or is that per business? It's an aggregate of all pass-through businesses. Okay. Um, on slide 33, would guaranteed payments to individuals B and C be treated in the same fashion as W-2 income? Yes. Okay. They're essentially treated as um, wages at the individual level. Okay. And that, that th those amounts are not eligible for the 20% deduction. Okay. You may want to stay on this slide for a minute. Uh, what happens if a taxpayer has a large capital gain uh, in the pass-through deduction calculation? Then that capital gain is excluded from that part of the calculation. All right. Uh, does the new law encourage repatriation of cash to the United States? And if so, are there any planning points for repatriating cash in non-controlled or controlled foreign corporation captive insurance companies? <laughs> uh, that's... Now, let me try and answer it this way. If you have a okay. controlled foreign corporation, virtually 100% of those have elected to be taxed as a U.S. taxpayer. So while they might be there, they might be organized in a foreign jurisdiction for U.S. federal income tax purposes, they're treated the same as any other U.S. taxpayer. So there is no change whatsoever for a CFC arrangement. In, in the case of a NCFC arrangement, there are potentially some complexities with those arrangements. And that's not really a, a matter of whether there's a benefit to repatriation of funds Essentially, there should not be, as I understand, and I am not an international tax expert, and this is getting really into the weeds of some international tax issues, um, but there, there should not be a difference in how that is, any repatriation of funds are taxed. However, if you have an NCFC, I would recommend that it's something you should discuss with your administrator and perhaps your CPA or your administrator is probably going to turn you to your CPA for this. There are some changes in the qualification of those NCFCs to avoid what's, be, what's referred to as a, um, a, a PFIC or a private foreign investment corporation, that there was an exception to those rules that used to apply to NCFCs that now may not apply, and that may be detrimental to the taxation of your NCFC.
uh, on the slide regarding that, that had an individual net operating loss of $100,000 that was generated, would only 80% of the net operating loss be allowed to be used in the next taxable year? Right, so that um, because that the, the same rules apply to personal NOLs as apply to corporate NOLs. And so if that NOL is generated, as it would in this case in 2018, uh, that limitation would apply starting in 2019 that you could only utilize, you know, 80%, to offset 80%. Uh, and could you please repeat the five takeaways uh, that you listed at the end of the presentation? Sure. Let me uh, pull back up my notes on that real quick. The five takeaways were, number one, time to revisit your state planning with increased lifetime exemption. Number two, evaluate the use of C corporations for certain segments of your organization. Number three, position yourself to maximize depreciation deductions, including 100% expensing. Number four, monitor your interest limitation and act accordingly. And number five was maximize your qualification for the 20% pass-through deduction. Okay. Uh, got a few more questions. All right, just to confirm. If an S corporation elects to convert to a C corporation, this will not automatically trigger a LIFO recapture? Correct. Okay. All right. Uh, but the reverse does trigger LIFO recapture. Okay. So if you had a C corp and you want to go to an S corp, it does, does require the recapture? Yep. Correct. Okay. Uh, does the new tax law require companies that have $25 million or more in revenue to report on an accrual basis for tax purposes versus cash basis? There, there are some changes in the thresholds for qualifying for the cash basis. Um, quite honestly, I, I've read those, but in the midst of all this other stuff, it probably went in one year and out the other. I don't recall because it's just isn't, it's never going to be applicable to any of my clients. Okay. Um, could you speak a little more on the advantages of a management company as a separate entity for a small dealership group? Well, in, in, in the case of you had a small group of dealerships, the, the suggestion, and I, we haven't really worked through a, full example on this, but the suggestion is you could have a C-Corp management company and you could charge management fees, take a 29.6% deduction at the uh, dealership level. You'd only pick that up at 21% at the C-Corp, and to the extent that that C-Corp is not going to distribute its accumulated you know, cash reserves, you'd have a favorable rate arbitrage. Um, you know, is, is there a circumstance where that's going to be the, the answer? I don't know. You'd have to work through it. I've even thought of maybe you have a C-Corp in it. I mean, if you were starting with a clean sheet of paper and wanted to build a dealership group, 
you might have a C-Corp management company, have a own 50% of all your dealerships that you buy, have those in partnerships, have all the cash you're accumulated in that C-Corp, use that to buy more and more dealerships. You could do something like that and kind of get the best of both worlds. But um, unfortunately, we don't have many situations where you could start with a clean sheet of paper. You, you've got the constraints of what you have today to work around. All right. Um, okay, we have employees uh, who have to travel um, to auctions, auction sites to purchase inventory and sometimes need to stay overnight. Uh, would there, is their hotel and meal expense still 100% deductible or only 50% deductible under the new law? Well, your, your, your travel expense, your hotel would, is unchanged. It would still be 100% deductible. Um, your meal expense uh, would be, as it was before, would be limited to 50%. And if they went to a sporting event while they were there and for some reason you were uh, reimbursing them, that would now be non-deductible yeah. for the entertainment fee. Right. Again, uh, if we have a September 30th fiscal year entity that's income generated after January 1st, date 18, through September 30th of 18, get the lower 21% C-Corp rate for activity in that period? Um, if you have a C-Corporation, I think the questions before were about if you have a flow-through entity and the flow-through deduction. Um, if you have a C-Corporation, I don't have it in front of me. It's not in these slides because it's kind of such a rare thing to have a C-Corp dealership. If you have a fiscal year-end C-Corp, there's kind of a table that phases this all in depending on what your fiscal year-end is. Okay. Uh, with transportation fringe benefits, which are no longer deductible, uh, would they include employee mileage reimbursement for driving a personal car between dealerships? Uh, no. That would be a, a, I believe that would be a travel cost um, right. that, that, that's distinguished from those types of expenses. Okay. All right. We're at the end of the questions. Uh, so that will bring us to the end of today's program. Uh, John, did you have any more questions that came in? Um, I think we might have missed a few questions. If we did miss your question, um, Joe, can you go to the next slide that has your contact information on it? Yep, so you can contact uh, Natalie or myself. Yeah, and I know we did miss a few questions, so uh, feel, feel free to contact Joe. All right, uh, yeah, please, uh, if we missed your question or, or you don't think it was uh, answered adequately, please contact Joe or Natalie directly. You've got their phone numbers and uh, email addresses right there in front of you. Uh, and with that, uh, I want to thank all of you for attending today. We had a very large crowd in the audience. Uh, we certainly appreciate that, uh, and we appreciate you taking the time, uh, an hour and a half out of your dealership day, and spending it with us. I'd like to offer special thanks to Joe Magyar and Natalie Fournier for taking their time to share their experience uh, and considerable expertise with us uh, and for putting today's presentation together. Thank you very much. 
And with that, uh, we're going to be signing off. This is Mike Bowers with Dealer's Edge. Hope you can join us again next week. Did you know VIP season ticket subscribers have access to this workshop and hundreds more in streaming video, MP3 download, audio CD, executive white paper summary, and podcast formats? Visit VIP.dealersedge.com for more information.